Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. The content of CME to go podcasts do not relate to any product of a commercial interest. Therefore, there are no relevant financial relationships to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Hello, and welcome to the Texas Medical Association's Practice Well podcast. My name is Anna Stelter with TMA Public Health, and our guest panel today includes four physician experts in family violence, intimate partner violence, and child abuse. Dr. Christopher Greeley is a pediatrician from Houston, Texas at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine, whose expertise includes child abuse and vulnerable families. Dr. Joyce Mock is a neurodevelopmental pediatrician from Fort Worth, formerly of Cook Children's Medical Center and recently retired. She is an expert in early childhood brain development and adverse childhood experiences. Dr. Kimberly Carter is an OB-GYN in Austin, Texas, and an assistant professor at UT Dell Medical School in the Women's Health Department, specializing in care for high-risk pregnancies. Dr. Corbin Weaver is a rising third-year resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the UT Austin Dell Medical School, and prior to residency, attended the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Dr. Carter, let's start by defining for the audience what the term family violence specifically refers to. So family violence incorporates not just actual violence where you actually have to cause some type of physical trauma, but it's it involves any type of coercion or neglect or emotional tormenting even psychological abuse that can happen within a family unit. So we also call this domestic violence, we call it intimate partner violence, and we call this child abuse. Um, Any of these things can be harmful to a person. You don't have to physically hit someone in order for you to cause harm to someone. And to add on to that, when we think specifically of children, which is what I do as a pediatrician, that kids are particularly vulnerable for a variety of reasons, one of which is most younger children are completely beholden to the parents for any sort of nutrition or sustenance or framing of what their worldview looks like. So if they are witnessing or living in a household full of violence, they learn that behavior. Secondly, they can also be victims if there is violence going on in the household between caregivers that child may be caught in the middle or may become a target of violence towards that child. So children are particularly at risk within households that have violence for both of those reasons. 
There's also some some populations that are specifically at higher risk. Um, children and adults with developmental disabilities or behavior disorders are at a five times higher risk than other children or adults. Family violence is not a simple problem even outside of a global pandemic. Um, can you remind the audience of a few things that's important to keep in mind during this episode about why family violence occurs? Yeah, absolutely. So family violence is, we primarily think of it as a result of a struggle for power and control. Um, anyone can be, any type of person can be affected by family violence. Um, this community is between two parents, a couple, between a parent and a child. Um, and because because of this dynamic, um, the uh Family violence can also be exacerbated by stressors. These stressors include financial stressors, mental health stressors, and interpersonal stressors. This means that um, anything that also creates a larger power dynamic can influence um, family violence, such as groups that are more in control of other groups. Um, Drug and alcohol use is often noted to increase in stressful situations, which can also exacerbate family violence. And also of note, presence of a firearm can increase the risk of family violence. Um, One study showed that um, presence of a firearm in a home increased the risk of violence by 500%. So having said all of this, clearly we are not under typical circumstances during COVID-19. Dr. Greeley, can you describe some of the reasons COVID-19 has created an especially dangerous environment for those at risk of family violence? Certainly. The COVID-19 has, as we all know, been quite disruptive, and it's been disruptive for uh, a number in a number of ways. So firstly, it is disruptive of our normal routine. So our normal routine of either having a job or going to school, the normal routine that we've had has been completely disrupted, which has been changing our dynamics. So families are now, um, for good or for bad, spending much more time closer together, having much more uh, um, uh, face-to-face time, even maybe even feeling cooped up. The second sort of disruption is as a result of the the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been financial disruption where maybe because of loss of job or inconsistency of job or transiency of job, uh, we end up with households that not only are uh, placed together in less typical routines, but also in a circumstance where they have fewer resources, perhaps. And so the issues of things like money or rent or food start becoming uh, exacerbating the stressors that that family has. So their routines are disruptive. And then on top of that, there's profound financial disruption in many families. And stressors that um, are are in a pandemic are not the same in every family. So a pandemic um, will disproportionately stress a family that already has um, the stressors of poverty, for example. And we know that poverty and um, and child abuse are also closely linked. You know, this also brings up something very interesting, and it's sort of why would people stay in an environment that is violent or coercive in any way? And one of the things we know in regards to women is that there's like a hundred reasons why someone has sex with someone else. And it's often for things like shelter and food and to keep your children safe or at least sheltered. And when we put these extra stresses 
on people by disrupting their economic situation or disrupting their ability to go to work or to go to school, where still those things that keep you in those situations are just even heavier than normal. You know, we see intimate partner violence across all socioeconomic and demographic groups. It's not more prevalent in lower income groups. They simply have less resources um, and they're screened at a higher rate. But we do see this in high income and well-educated families, as well as the low income and less educated families. What we want is to screen everyone, but we know that screening it doesn't always find the patients because they don't always want to tell us about the situation, but we at least want to make sure that there's an environment for them to come to when they're ready to tell us and they want help. Dr. Mock, you mentioned something that, that stuck out, that stressors in a pandemic are not the same in every family. And we've observed uh, the data are showing us very clearly that the effects of this pandemic are playing out disproportionately by race and ethnicity. So I want to see, what do you think about how race plays into this specific issue of child abuse and, and COVID-19? Right. The, the, there's clear data that shows that, um, that uh, minority populations are at higher risk for having COVID. Um, they're, also, they're also often in um, financial or occupational positions where they may have a higher um, rate of exposure to the, to the virus. And they're also a population that has um, less, less reliable health care, um, are more likely to be uninsured or inadequately insured um, for health care. So that that um, they will be um, queried for abuse more commonly as well, more much less likely than somebody who has a stand a standing good relationship with the provider versus a quick screening. So there's an implicit bias um, for our caregivers as well as an increased risk for um, families of color. Dr. Weaver, in normal circumstances, what are some family violence indicators physicians might be typically screening for or attuned to in the clinical encounter? So I often think of what what might key a provider into um, abuse situation or family violence situation are things that just don't add up. So so patients who come in with unexplained injuries, patients with chronic pain syndromes, abdominal pains that you can't find an organic cause to, um, unexplained headaches, uh, uh, sexually transmitted infections. Also, we know that older adults uh, who have caretakers are at risk of family violence and neglect. And so older adults with signs of signs of neglect um, when they come in, how they've been cared for at home or older adults with unexplained injuries or injuries that don't don't fit with their their habits. and like I said, unexplained um, visits. Also, we can just see we can see risks or kind of red flags by how people interact with the healthcare system itself. So, for example, frequent emergency department visits. Uh, oftentimes, abusers will um, kind of control where. Uh, 
where their uh, partner will seek care. And one place where this happens quite frequently is the emergency department because it's, there's very little continuity of care in between the different providers. So um, one provider can't establish patterns and realize what um, what, what could be going on at home or behind the scenes. Um, missed appointments, again, we talked about how family violence is um, a matter of power and control. And so um, if an abuser is controlling the the calendar or how a person is accessing care they may not not um be present for their their visits or show up uh, to a visit with a with a provider um and in pregnancy this also comes up with like late access to care because again that access to other people is being controlled the access to the healthcare system is being controlled um another another type of uh, family violence and intimate partner violence specifically that Dr. Carter kind of alluded to earlier is something called reproductive coercion in which um, oh, someone is not given control over their own reproductive um, autonomy. So whether that's uh, birth control, not having access to birth control and being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy or the opposite, um, having sabotage of one's birth control, um, having or having uh, being forced to have repeated abortions, for example. So these are all examples of something called reproductive coercion. Um, and in line with that, um, we talk a lot in medicine about our patients who um, may not follow plans of care that um, have been established by, you know, hopefully by providers and the patients themselves. But medication non-adherence can be a sign that someone is being controlled. It, um and in, part, in a family violence situation. Another example is um, for patients that something just doesn't add up. So when you enter a room and a patient seems, um, the affect is seems not appropriate to the situation, they may be jumpy, or they may be fearful of a part of your exam. Um, they may avoid direct questions. And then finally, Something that can often be a red flag is if that a person partner is often with them and does not want them to be separated from you. If they're overly attentive, if they talk over your patient, um, if they answer questions for your patient and they refuse to leave your patient alone or are reluctant to leave your patient alone. One of the unfortunate things that we found is that how we pick up on these things depends on our own biases that are often implicit and we are unaware of and and how we interpret what we're seeing. And so that we might overly interpret some of these things that we may see in a low income or less educated population. And we may be more willing to accept excuses in a well-educated and high income population. And so as physicians, we need to be aware of our own implicit biases when we interact with the patient so that we can be more able to to reach out to the patients who may need our help that we may be missing. Dr. Mock, do you have anything you'd like to add about what you look for when examining children? 
Yes, um, children children are, are a little bit more di- difficult to um, to sort out um, even than than adults. We obviously look for bruising, unexplained bruising, particularly in babies, where where we typically don't see bruises. We obviously look for good explanations for injuries and are concerned when there's unexplained fractures, but also looking for more subtle things like behavior changes. Children, too, are often, um, they will have an outcry or disclosure um, during an exam if they have a good trusting relationship with the physician. Um, Children also have the vague symptoms that um, Dr. Weaver was alluding to. So someone comes in um, frequently for tummy aches or headaches or something like that without without a clear cause. Yeah, I would agree. I think the child abuse as a disease is really hard to identify in the office. Uh, we can see very clear, obvious examples, but it, the nature of the disease um, is something that physicians are often fearful to probe, often unclear on how to actually get information to explore. Is this finding something that they should be concerned about. And even in the face of being mandated reporters, all physicians are mandated reporters, we still find some, as uh, had been noted earlier by Dr. Carter, some biases that we don't screen exactly evenly. We tend to have less screening for families that are intact, are married, and have some a degree of, of means or wealth, and tend to overscreen families who are minority, live in marginalized communities. And so we tend to uh, not necessarily see the things in our office and not really pay attention to things like the missed visits, you know, children who have multiple missed pediatrician visits. That actually is an important positive findings for risk to that child. Injury patterns are clearly concerning, but if we think of the big picture, that the biggest uh, concern for children in terms of broadly maltreatment is neglect, it's the things that kids don't get that is really critical. So missed appointments, medication noncompliance, and in the era of COVID, that may be challenged to, to be able to separate what is families that are struggling because of the marginalization and disenfranchisement and instability of their circumstances. And what is a family that is being neglectful? And that's where I think physicians have a difficult time trying to to separate those two. And it's understandable because it's really complicated. Dr. Greeley, what evidence do we have so far that increases in family violence are actually occurring during COVID-19? That's an excellent question. If we sort of step back and think this is early July when we're recording, we've only had three or four months of COVID having its full impact on our communities. And even in that relatively short period of time, we've seen sort of mixed data. The data in terms of reports to uh, women's shelters and domestic violence uh, centers has actually gone up and there's data not just in Texas, but nationally and internationally, that anywhere between 10% and 30% of the centers are have an increase in their calls. And so we're seeing a lot more in terms of adult or intimate partner violence, domestic violence reports. And it, uh, curiously, we've had the exact opposite uh, experience dealing with child abuse. Most states, Texas included, has had significant decrease in the reports to 
CPS or Child, Children's Protective Services. And there's a couple of explanations for that. And one of the explanations that I think is uh, likely most important is the disruption of the life um, uh, routines that families and kids have, which has resulted in the decrease of teachers. And teachers uh, represent somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 percent of all reports for uh, to CPS. And so with the disruption in starting in March till now, uh, with teachers no longer being present, you really have a significant decrease of what we would call community sentinels. And we think of sentinels like guards in a military base, people who are out there watching. And that's really what children often depend on uh, for reports to CPS. So across the board, Texas included, states are reporting somewhere between uh, 30 or 40% fewer calls month on month to the state. The flip side is many hot spots have been identified where perhaps the calls may be fewer, but the injuries may be worse. And in fact, some of the hospitals in Texas have reported uh, volumes that have actually gone down, but the severity of the injuries uh, reported uh, for child abuse have actually gone up. So it's a mixed picture. Uh, likely, this is a result of of children who are, again, in very tenuous circumstances, but fewer community sentinels, teachers, guidance counselors that are able to report. Right. And Dr. Greeley, it's unfortunate that this also is occurring in the background of the challenges that we are facing with the child welfare system. We've had um, some ongoing concerns about our own ability in Texas to respond to children who are at risk or who have experienced um, neglect or, or um, abuse, we would really like to get to a system where prevention is key and early intervention um, was the way we dealt with children at, at risk. And I know on the women's health side, we've seen that our women's health shelters um, are at capacity and that there's been an uptake in women who are calling for help for domestic violence. Anecdotally, I was speaking to one of my patients who has recently revealed herself to be uh, at risk for that and has gotten out of her relationship. And she said that the judge gave her a protective order and specifically told her it was faster than normal because they're seeing so many women being so violently harmed during the COVID that they are in general trying to respond more proactively. And so in some ways, this may be good in the sense that COVID is revealing to us some of our shortcomings in society and how we protect some of our citizens. And and we know that in general, women, pregnant women in particular, and women who are vulnerable, such as from intimate partner violence, are not a part of disaster preparedness planning. So during a hurricane, they're not a part of the planning process. And during COVID-19, it has not been a part of the planning process. And this clearly shows us that it's an important subgroup of people that need to be thought about and protected. Dr. Mock, beyond screening, what can physicians do about this, especially since in-person visits with patients are now happening less frequently? Yes, um, physicians are struggling with with how to reach um, families who may be at at risk for abuse. Um, We know that some families are identified in in each doctor's practice that we know are vulnerable, and 
practices um, should be actively outreaching to outreaching to vulnerable um, patients and families. Staff can call them, um, see if the ones that are at risk. The other thing is, is that it's incumbent upon all um, doctors to know the local resources um, for um, financial help, um, obviously CPS, um, intimate partner violence um, shelters. Um, it's important to ask families how they are doing and how they're handling COVID, even if they're coming in just for a minor illness or for a well child check. And I think it's important to be specific. Ask the family if they feel safe. Those are really excellent strategies for the, the pediatrician. And in addition, uh, my uh, framework includes stepping outside of the office. And I think that is something that pediatricians more and more are feeling comfortable doing. I sort of hearken this back to Abraham Jacoby, who was the very first American pediatrician in 1904 talks about that the role of the what he called the pedologist, the pediatrician, was to step away from the out of the hospitals and away from the bedside, and to uh, he says work with uh, civic leaders, juries, and judges, uh, and, and even the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP, in, in 2012. Uh, embrace this idea of what they call the eco-biodevelopmental framework, which really says pediatricians, when thinking about their children that they're caring for, they need to think more upstream, think of the policies and practices in their communities, think of things like uh, green spaces, and think of things in terms of the educational and employment uh, structures within their community. So pediatricians, when we think of prevention, it's things we can do in the office, but there's lots of things we are now should be doing outside of our office, outside, away from the bedside if we're in the hospital, and thinking about becoming community agents, agents for advocacy for these uh, children and families that may be struggling. Yeah, that brings up a great point. One of the programs that we've seen help reduce some adverse events is something called the Nurse Family Partnership, and it's some it's a program that's available statewide, but it's it's underfunded and it's underutilized, I think, because people don't necessarily realize that they can get their patients enrolled in this. You know, our whole point is that you know we've asked ourselves. I know Dr. Weaver and I have had long discussions about why do we do something like urine drug screens in pregnancy and who gets screened, right? The whole point is that we're trying to prevent adverse childhood events like child abuse. Um, and, but what are the resources if we, if we find this, what can we do to make a family better so that their risk of abuse is less? And it's a challenging question to answer, but I, I do know that there are some programs out there that we need to all try to encourage our patients to participate in and that we as as a community should make sure that there's funding for these programs and the things that work should be promoted heavily like the Nurse Family Partnership. Yeah, I, I think that one of the biggest uh, sort of pivots that healthcare has now begun to undertake is the embracing of social determinants of health. And it really is recognizing that healthcare isn't an island unto itself and that it's part of a larger system that affects the lives of 
families affect the lives of, of kids uh, that we see. And that's really critical to be able to say, are there other things outside of my office that I can be engaged in that affects the life trajectory of that child? I, I think these are the direction that we, we should be going, we should be in, endorsing in our communities. I, you know, I agree completely that advocacy is plays a huge role in making sure resources are available. And in our offices, when on an individual basis, when physicians give resources, we need to acknowledge to ourselves that it takes planning and organization for patients to act on those. So some of our families will be slow to use the resources we give them, and they can be there can be reasons for that, and they may need time to become ready to access the resources. Dr. Greeley, what strategies do you think physicians can offer to support parents right now who find themselves stressed and exhausted? From the pediatrician's perspective, uh, there are a couple of strategies that I think are helpful to uh, promote and endorse to families. And uh, in our show notes, we'll have the link to the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, and other references that could be helpful. And things that that we can promote to families, um, first and foremost, is the idea of having routines. Routines in kids' lives are really, really helpful. If we think of how do children understand their day, it is the routine. It is now time to wake up. It's now time to go to school. Think of the things that we talk to young families about for one of the most disruptive things, it's infant sleep, one of the things we promote is getting a clear routine for the baby. So this is no different. Children do need to have a routine. They should wake up at a regular time. Meals should be as regular as possible. Uh, and along those lines is personal hygiene. We tend to think, well, it's a prolonged vacation, so children don't have to brush their teeth or bathe as often. So clear routines, pers- maintaining personal hygiene, and then other things such as regular exercise, you know, that is really hard because of uh, how much we embrace screen time and having regular exercise, structured outside running, walking the dog, doing something regularly should be paired with regular, some form of intellectual stimulation, uh, puzzles, reading books, doing games. Now, all of that can be placed into a framework of this is what the family does and that the family does this together, um, that it then will allow people to recognize that while this is a different set of circumstances, uh, you know, COVID has really been disruptive. We as a family will try to maintain ourselves as a unit. We'll try to continue what we're doing. We will I- embrace our routine, our physical activity, our mental health, but then also in all of this not being too helicoptery, to also say that people should have their individual time to relax, meditation, take a nap, and even uh, decompress with maybe some screen time. So getting back to these basics are things that we can embrace and endorse to our families uh, and then the parents of young kids as well. Dr. Mock, many physicians are now transitioning their practices to telemedicine. How do you think virtual encounters with patients make it easier or more challenging to detect and respond to family violence? Well, some telehealth visits are telephone only and some are video, and this does make a difference in what we can learn from virtual visits. 
Video gives us a chance to see the household situation. Sometimes we can see who else is in the house as they wander by or participate in the visit. You can get a sense of if the home is chaotic by um, doing a, a video. And some families who don't agree to video visit, it may be one to hide something they don't want us to see, but it may also be for a technology reason. Um, we try to talk to parents alone as we can and older children and adolescents alone as much as we can because we're more apt to get an honest answer when we ask for um, questions that might indicate risk. Some um, telehealth vendors also will allow chatting during the video, which may give an opportunity for um, outcries or, or outreach that's, in, that's private to the physician. And um, sometimes they will also give you an opportunity to send um, resources or talk outside of the audio um, or even send documents to, to the family. So um, all of those things um, vary um, from provider to provider and the system to system and can change how useful the televisit is. I know in the adult world, one of the things that we can do is to start the conversation before you ask something specific to the patient with an open-ended statement such as COVID and being at home is very stressful and we know that sometimes this can increase stresses in the family. Would you mind if I sent you information about how to deal with this stress? And it gives us an opportunity to, to talk about intimate partner violence or at least send information about it without actually talking about it. One of the things that we often need to make sure that we're aware of is, is the patient alone? Can anyone hear our discussion? Because it's definitely going to limit our discussion at times if other people are listening, um, because the patient may not be comfortable or may not be, um, or may be fearful about what they might tell us, but get them in trouble after the conversation's over. So by starting out with an a statement about this globally, but not specific to you as the patient, gives them an opportunity to get information without necessarily getting into, quote, trouble with someone who doesn't want them to have that kind of information. Dr. Greeley, can you remind us if a physician ends up during the clinical encounter with a strong suspicion that family violence is occurring, can you remind us what they should do and um, what are the next steps? Certainly. From a pediatrician's perspective uh, uh, and from any physician's perspective in the state of Texas, all physicians are what are called mandated reporters, which means in the course of your professional duties, if you have a reason to believe uh, with the available information that a child is at risk or a finding is from abuse or neglect, then we are mandated by the state to call uh, there's a number of ways to do it. There's a, a hotline. There's you can do it anonymously on um, uh, online, uh, and there are penalties for not reporting. If if your concerns are uh, emergent, then really the first step is 911. 911. If you think a child is in grave danger. The first step is the safety and well-being of that child, and that could mean a 911 call. Um, there, all of the major children's hospitals have uh, physicians who are called child abuse pediatricians who are able to answer questions, who are very 
um, uh, attuned to ways in which we can help uh, community physicians uh, sort through whether there is a duty to report or not report. Uh, even with even if children's hospitals don't have child abuse pediatricians, most of the children's hospitals will have people who will be able to help. And my my big framework is in these times of profound disruption that we have to have some sensitivity that when we see a family that's struggling, our first our first thoughts should not be punishment or not be punitive. Our first thought is how can we help? You know, family, you know, I live in this world that parents love their children across the board. Sometimes they don't love them very well, even though they may love them a lot. Um, and so our roles as healthcare providers, particularly pediatricians, is we should think of our role as helping. And then occasionally the reports have to be punitive, that the child is in danger and has to be somehow uh, saved. Um, the challenge is also that we as physicians need to be aware of what's in our community. So uh, if your community is relatively smaller and you know all of the family and child serving agencies, then that's easier for you to make a referral. Or you can, if your community is larger, you can refer to places such as, or resources such as 211. And sometimes there are some statewide resource networks that are online. All of those are uh, good opportunities to connect uh, families, connect patients, connect uh, uh, parents to resources that are locally sourced. Some hospitals have what are called medical legal partnerships, which help families sort through what are some of the legal struggles that they may be having with things like tenant landlord issues, employment, uh, immigration, all of those things are really critical and in this time of disruption make it even more confusing for families. Then each of the communities will have uh, specific resources for things like food insecurity or um, uh, violence resources. And that's the role of uh, we, if we are concerned a child is at risk, our first step is to think of ourselves as how we can help provide resources, and if we have reason to believe that the child has been a victim, we are mandated reporters. For adults, um, this is uh, a little different because physicians are not actually, are not required to report adult abuse unless they fall into certain categories. Elder abuse, um, anyone 65 or older, if there's a suspicion of human trafficking or abuse of a disabled adult. However, this doesn't mean that just because physicians are not mandatory reporters uh, in these situations, it doesn't mean that screening and education are for naught. Um, Actually, there have been studies that show that women who are educated about intimate partner violence, for example, are more likely to leave an abusive relationship whether or not they actually disclose to their provider that they were they felt like they were in an unsafe relationship or a relationship where they were being uh, a victim of intimate partner violence in some ways. So ACOG, our, um, our kind of governing body as obstetrician gynecologist, says that even if, you know, the abuse is not acknowledged, just discussing intimate partner violence in a manner that's having educational materials or resources in the community can be beneficial. As um, Dr. Mock kind of pointed out earlier, uh, often leaving in an abusive situation is not simple. It's financially complicated. It can be logistically complicated. And oftentimes people aren't ready. For instance, in intimate partner violence situations, um, even... Um, 
you know, people have a connection to their partner and they not be, they might not desire to leave a relationship or they may not be ready. And so providing that education and resources for, um, for the future helps for someone to plan. It helps for someone to kind of take, make up their own mind about the next steps, what's right for them in their situation. Panelists, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? I would say that in this time of uh, family and community disruption, we uh, have to maintain ourselves as uh, agents of uh, change and positivity for uh, the families and children we care for as a pediatrician. And that that requires us to have a mindset of we are here to help. And even if they come to us with things that are less typical medical, uh, our job is to do what we can do to help them. Absolutely, Dr. Greeley. Um, We hopefully have set ourselves up with the families that we care for as a safe place for them to share concerns and share concerns that go beyond traditional medicine. I think it's even more important during these times that that we ask ask open-ended questions during our um, visits and allow families a chance to tell us what's really going on in their lives. Yeah, I think we need to recognize that even the most thoughtful provider is going to miss the fact that their patient is suffering from intimate partner violence. The goal is to create an environment uh, that the patient feels like they can learn from and that if they want to turn for help, that it's there for them, that we're ready for them to help them change the situation and we're ready with resources for when they are ready to change their situation. Yeah, and I think my final thoughts are that what brings to mind in these situations is that um, often these situations are situations that may not add up to us, that, you know, they might be slight warning signs that don't totally compute, and I think it's important to lean into those those tough conversations or lean into those red flags that you have and, you know, let your patient or your, um, you know, guide where that conversation goes and the next steps. And um, I think that's how we make a difference in this space. Thanks to all our panelists for joining us for today's episode of TMA's Practice Well podcast, featuring Dr. Christopher Greeley, Dr. Joyce Mock, Dr. Kimberly Carter, and Dr. Corbin Weaver. To access links and lists of resources discussed in this episode, please visit TMA's COVID-19 resource page at www.texmed.org slash COVID-19. Until next time, stay safe and stay well.